This is Mark Stein. Winter is a big blah, so it's time to get out of town with the ultimate cabin fever reliever. Join me on the 2024 Mark Stein Caribbean cruise, sailing from Florida to the Bahamas, Jamaica, the Caymans, and Mexico for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Britain, Europe, the House of Lords. And we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Cause you've been found and convicted of a serious crime. The guilty party right here, as determined by a jury of my peers. Uh, if you're guilty of love, as the song says, it's Valentine's Day 2024, 3 p.m. Deep State Standard Time. Uh, and just beyond my shrunken horizons, 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, 4.30 p.m. in fabulous Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 8 p.m. in London, 9 p.m. in Terni in central Italy, where St. Valentine was born in Anno Domini 226, 10 p.m. in Jerusalem, 11 p.m. in Yemen, for all you Houthis, Houthi hooting out there. 11.30 p.m. in Tehran, for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. 1.45 a.m. in Kathmandu, for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 4 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers. Sorry about that. You know I'm sorry. 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. Come on, you should be up by now. 9 a.m. in Auckland. A rather more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgery, and even deeper into Thursday in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific, where you're so far ahead, I've probably already lost my appeal by now. Valentine's Day. Check out this week's Song of the Week for the story of the great Valentine love song. A lot of listeners seem to like that show, and I thank you for your kind comments. The good news is... I am no longer in America's diseased and depraved capital city. The bad news is uh, they stuck me with a $1 million checkout tax. So Man versus Stein moves on to its next phase, year 13, only in America. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, my suit against the UK state censor Ofcom for their rulings against my... Uh, coverage of the COVID vaccines, uh, that uh, case comes to the King's Bench Division of the High Court in London on uh, June the 11th, I think it is, a little postponed. 
uh, because on all the available days in March, which is when it was meant to be heard, uh, on all the available days in March, Ofcom was washing its hair. So uh, in order to accommodate Ofcom's shampoo schedule, it's been moved to June the 11th. Um, uh, Don't forget, in between these twin trials of the century, it's the Mark Stein Caribbean cruise. Dear Michelle Bachman, whose support I have been so grateful for this last month. Uh, Michelle, of course, will be on our Caribbean cruise, as she has been on our St. Lawrence cruise and on our uh, Alaska cruise and our Adriatic cruise. Michelle will be there. She was very kindly pushing my wheelchair to the car so I could get the hell out of the courthouse at the end of each day in D.C. Michelle is always a big hit in our crew. She's wonderful company, as you'll discover if you've booked passage at MarkSteinCruise.com. Headline of the day from the New York Post. Notorious race faker Rachel Dolezal. Uh, If you remember, she was the white lady who pretended to be black. Uh, Notorious race faker Rachel Dolezal now, or maybe I should say identified as black. Self-identified as black. Notorious race faker Rachel Dolezal, now an elementary school teacher, while raking in thousands on OnlyFans. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, America, Uh, um, uh, uh, the American education system, which is almost as institutionally evil as the actually it's more institutionally evil than the American uh, justice system, because the American justice system uh, hasn't yet advanced to cutting the breasts off schoolgirls. Although if you wind up in court over those such cases, they tend to defer to the science as does not everybody these days, even when the science is only three days old. Uh, So how about a better headline of the day? This is courtesy of our friends at the Gateway Pundit. Penn State professor charged with animal cruelty after being caught having sex with his pet dog faces additional charges after video emerges of him sticking tree branch and lollipop into his butt in public park. And my first thought was, whoa, I hope someone didn't get carried away on his victory celebration. Uh, But in fact, the um, guy having sex with his uh, collie is the Penn State Professor of Chemical Engineering, Temis Matsukas. Uh, Even though it's Valentine's Day, he's not the kind to bother with a uh, candlelit table in uh, in a nice romantic restaurant. He just takes the collie to the park. Uh, Professor Matsukas is so into the environment that he likes to show his support for it by masturbating on Pennsylvania DCNR, that's the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, Uh, He likes to show his support by masturbating on Pennsylvania DCNR vehicles. Uh, I guess one way or another that is a natural resource. He was caught on camera inserting the handle of a DCNR John Deere crawler. Uh, That's a kind of uh, tractor. Uh, A DCNR. He was caught on camera inserting the handle of a DCNR John Deere crawler into his bottom. 
Yeah, great. In Penn State's Happy Valley, his valley was the happiest. The chemical engineering professor at Pennsylvania State University. Um, I just got a couple of quick thoughts on the <laughs> the state of affairs that has existed uh, since the jury returned their verdict last Thursday. Just a couple of thoughts, quick thoughts, and we'll get on to your questions. Uh, in Canada, 15 years ago, before um, the big Islamophobia, Islamophobia trial at the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal, uh, I'd occasionally read these legal scholars saying, oh, uh, if... Uh, if uh, the uh, the uh, whatever they were called the Canadian Islamic Congress wins, Stein will be appealed to the Supreme Court. Stein is going to the Supreme Court. Stein is this. Stein is that. And uh, it took me a while to figure out that while I was reading this, that Stein uh, was no longer a flesh and blood human being. He was a case. Stein will be appealed to the Supreme Court, etc. And uh, America today, it's slightly different. Um, I was listening to uh, Victor Davis Hanson, who has a show out there. In fact, I think it's called the Victor Davis Hanson Show. And on the latest edition, about an hour in or so, he starts talking about this case. And uh, he's not doing the Stein will be appealed to the Supreme Court this time, although, in fact, Stein will be appealed to the Supreme Court. Instead, he was going, Stein was this, Stein was that, Stein was this, Stein was that. We were colleagues together at Hillsdale some years ago. Um, and so in this case, it's exactly as it was 15 years ago in Canada. Stein is no longer a flesh and blood human being. He's dead. He's dead. It's the past tense stuff <laughs> that uh, gets a little dispiriting. Anyway, as I said, I am liberated from Washington DC, and I'm back uh, a few, just a few miles south of the Quebec border in the beautiful north country of uh, northern New England, where in fact it's rather a snowy day today. Um, another one I was listening to uh, it was a show about living outside the law from a pseudonymous uh, internet waller called the Z Man or the Z-Man, as I would say, but I think he calls himself uh, the Z-Man. And, and uh, my verdict uh, had given him occasion to discuss me and to discuss uh, Trump and to discuss uh, Peter Brimelow's website, vdare.com, and to discuss uh, Douglas Mackey, uh, who wound up uh, going to jail for various... Hillary Clinton memes on the internet and uh, that fellow who uh, intervened to stop a crazy guy menacing people on the subway and uh, the Z-Man Z-Man's uh, general thrust was that there are now there are increasing numbers of people who are without the law not in the Kipling sense but in the sense that uh, in a land of laws these people are beyond the law and so do, do not enjoy the protection of the law and he talked about my case and he talked about Trump's and V-Dare's where essentially uh, Trump in particular some of these lawsuits that the Attorney General of New York the same person who's targeting V-Dare um, 
uh, Trump's is a victimless crime. All the people who did business with Trump said, oh, yeah, we had a great time, no problems, no nothing. It's a victimless crime. But they're threatening to take his businesses, the businesses he built, away from him. Uh, which is rather what happened to my friend Conrad Black, uh, whatever it is now, 15 years ago, where I saw a lot of the things that are now routine in embryo in that case, which is why even when it happens to a person you might not care for, you should always take it seriously, because all these things start at the fringes and then move inwards. And it's the same thing with VDARE. You know, America is a super hyper uh, bureaucratic society. Uh, and if you have a society that's as bureaucratic on the scale of the United States, it means that there is, if they want to find you guilty of something, and they've got unlimited resources to go through all the stuff, they're bound to find something in there. But essentially, what they're, what they're proposing to do both with Trump and VDARE, which is an anti-mass immigration website. And if you're not anti-mass immigration uh, at this particular point in Western civilization's history, then you're basically just wishing doom and ruination on your children and grandchildren. So you're, uh, you're, you're an idiot. There's nothing to do with, you know, cheap agricultural labor that is worth trading the entirety of your civilization for. Um, but anyway, simply because the Attorney General of New York disagrees with VDARE on subjects like mass immigration and disagrees with Trump just because he uh, does mean tweets, they're now taking your businesses away from you. They're trying to figure out a way to do the same to Elon Musk. They haven't quite worked it out yet, but they're going to if he keeps it up. Um, and so uh, the Z-Man, Z-Man uh, devotes an hour, and it's rather an interesting hour, to talking about people who no longer enjoy the protection of the law, such as myself. But after listening to it, after listening to it, I, I sort of started thinking about it, and um, I remembered a conversation. This is the difference between bad things happening to you in America and bad things happening to you in uh, Canada or Britain or Australia or France or Belgium or Denmark or wherever. Um, and I remember Mel Brooks uh, saying something to me um, 30 years ago at the time uh, uh, he brought out his movie, which flopped, a movie called Life Stinks. And Mel uh, said to me, yeah, you're very lucky. You don't know what it's like in America. In America, you get one little cancer and it wipes out everything you ever had. And I always think of Mel's line when, as I mentioned just before Christmas, I read something like Denny Lane of Wings, big rock star, wrote one of the biggest hits of all time. I think it's one of the best-selling singles on the planet, Mull of Kintar. But he died uh, with his wife having to set up a GoFundMe account for his medical treatment. Yeah, and I always remember Mel Brooks's line, you get one little cancer and it wipes out everything you ever had. And it started thinking about this difference that, you know, things that would be a bad turn, that would be 
that 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 would would be bad news certainly, and certainly bad for your bank account to a degree. Are not ruinous as they are in uh, America, and I I think of you know. Uh, things like uh, my former GB News colleague, Lawrence Fox, who lost a case that you might say had certain equivalent elements to mine. Uh, he'd been accused of being a racist, and he was just tired of being labelled as a racist with no evidence. So he labelled the people who labelled him a racist paedophiles. And the the judge ruled that there was an objective difference. Apparently, you know, you're allowed to call Lawrence Fox a racist, but the people who call people racists are not allowed to be called paedophiles. And so he lost that case. And he's going to... So it has certain elements in common with, uh, you know, Rand Simberg and Jerry Sandusky and all that. And Lawrence got... Lawrence will uh, eventually, the, the court will find he's liable. The court's found he's libeled them, but hasn't said how much he owes. It'll be a couple of thousand quid, I would have thought, you know. So it's not ruinous. Um, in 19... I'm just... I, I looked up a couple of the most famous libel cases in English history. In 1959, Liberace took the Daily Mirror to court... Uh, over a piece written by the pseudonymous columnist Cassandra for describing the cantalabred pianist as a, quote, Winker, winking, sniggering, snuggling, chromium-plated, scent-impregnated, luminous, quivering, giggling, fruit-flavoured, mincing, ice-covered heap of mother love. Unquote. And Liberace sued for libel on the grounds that uh, this sentence suggested he was a, quote, homosexualist, uh, whereas, in fact, everyone knew that Liberace was as heterosexual as the day is long. Well, Liberace won that case, and the Daily Mirror remained furious about that, uh, so that when, a quarter century later, Liberace died of AIDS, the Mirror's front page headline was, Can We Have Our Money Back?, but the point is, it wasn't a lot of money. Liberace's famous line was that he, quote, cried all the way to the bank, but the sum he got from English justice was barely worth for him the trip to the bank, £8,000 in damages. Another famous case. I had a slight acquaintanceship with both plaintiff and defendant here. The Sunday People's TV critic, Nina Miskow, and uh, Charlotte Cornwell, the actress and half-brother of the uh, of of the spy novelist John le Carre, Miss Miss Cow had written of Miss Cornwell, quote, "She can't sing, her bum's too big, and she has the sort of stage presence that blocks lavatories." Miss Cornwell sued, and so the bigness of her bum was adjudicated, and it was found to be not that big at all by comparison uh, with other bums of the acting profession. And Nina Miskow was ordered to pay Charlotte Cornwell £11,500. There's a difference here. So many things. Uh, you know, Mel Brooks was talking about healthcare, which can be ruinous here. Getting stopped by the police in the wrong circumstances can be ruinous here. I think of Justine Damond, an Australian immigrant in Minneapolis. She called 911 and the cops showed up and Officer Mohammed Noor shot her dead. The Somali affirmative action constable. He's out, he's out, he's served his sentence, he shot her dead 
uh, whatever it was, five, six years ago, he's already out of jail. Risk of being shot dead by a policeman in Australia answering your emergency call, zero percent. So things that can be a mild inconvenience in other countries uh, can be ruinous here and uh, none more so than the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt US justice system. OK, let's get to your questions. Oh, the first one is from Ellen Como, a former candidate for the Parti Populaire du Canada in, uh, in uh, Quebec uh, and a uh, big supporter uh, of, and a big talent, actually, in the Parti Populaire. And uh, Ellen writes, Cher Monsieur Stein, tellement désolé pour ce jugement insensé et injuste. I could tell you what that means, but I'm not going to, because I'm thinking of doing the rest of the show in French. It would be mildly uh, less stressful uh, for me, I think. Uh, the, the English language hasn't really worked out for me. <laughs> After last Thursday, last Thursday, I've come to that conclusion. Ellen says, please know that fervent prayers are being offered daily for you, your health and your family. Melissa did a fantastic job, as always, last Friday in explaining the ins and outs of the case and the next steps. I trust you will be able to rest and recharge during the upcoming cruise. On another note... I was wondering if there was a French version of your excellent piece about O Canada. You run it every year on Dominion Day, Canada Day, for a young whippersnapper such as myself. <laughs> and I would love to share it with my francophone entourage. Oh, Ellen, I'm so jealous. I would love to have a francophone entourage. I've got a lousy anglophone entourage. Really isn't the same at all. And Ellen says, if it doesn't exist in French, do I have your permission to attempt a translation? Go go right ahead, Ellen. I trust you to pick up every Anglo nuance, and I certainly I would love to do a, a Franco version of it myself, but I don't have the time. Actually, Whatever it was a couple of months ago, uh, as I said, I <laughs> reached the conclusion that the English language isn't working out for me. And just as a r relaxation exercise, I wrote a, uh, I wrote a little poem in French. It wasn't bad. I may write a whole book of French poems by the time this litigation is over. On an additional note, says Ellen, uh, when called upon to read scripture... In Sunday school or Bible study, I asked myself how you would do it, then fail miserably in attempting to reproduce your intonation and cadence. My pastor then gives me a sidelong glance and mutters, thanks for the dramatics. Do you have any tips to share? Merci, cher Monsieur Stein. Long vie à vous. Et à bas. Les coques frédouilles, oui, vraiment, Ellen, c'est une uh, grande croquembouche des coques frédouilles. <laughs> uh, OK, uh, you're welcome to do... Here's the thing with the... I take it that you're referring to how I always um, do the lessons part of our lessons and carols and our Christmas Eve show. And, and the only advice I have is that the St. James Bible, which is the one I always read from, is beautiful. And, and the only thing you have to remember, particularly when it's well-known uh, biblical verses, is uh, not to read it as if you're reading it 
uh, a famous bit of you notice this with uh, when if you're in church and someone does the Lord's Prayer or if you just listen to the people next to you in the pews doing the Lord's Prayer you know, our Father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come it's too familiar and and the trick to doing it, um, actually, Ava Valadingerbrook did it on our show, and I don't know whether it was just because English is her second language, but she did it as if the thought were occurring to her at the fir- uh, for the first time. Um, and as I said, I don't know if that's just because she's used to doing it in Dutch or whatever. But that's my whole trick, is not to think, oh, I'm reading a piece of scripture here. Just think, I'm saying these words for the first time, and I'm trying to explain what happened to Joseph and Mary when they show up in Bethlehem. That's that's my advice for you. We, uh, we're going to do... Uh, maybe we'll do this. Uh, we'll move to this new format next week. It's going to be an acting masterclass in French. Okay, thank you to Ellen. We always call her our token francophone. In fact, she's not our token francophone, but <laughs> she was certainly a one of a few francophones on uh, our first couple of cruises, and um, I thank her very much for that. JC of Western Supermare in England. Uh, where they would be hard put, I think, to find a token francophone, says, Mark, I've read a lot of confusing comment, both above and below the line, since last week's disgraceful verdict. And I wonder if you could put me straight about what the case was really about and what it might be about as it goes to appeal. In 2019, Justice Alito... Uh, clearly thought there was a major free speech issue, but the rest of the Supreme Court did not, nor, it seems, did the D.C. Appeal Court. For his part, Judge Irving emphatically told the jury the case was not about climate change or what they thought about climate change, but about defamation, and that is where my confusion arises. In finding both you and Rand guilty, the jury had to find that the comments you made about man's work was provably false. The lack of evidence issues aside, it seems to me, therefore, that the jury must have reached the conclusion that the plaintiff's work is beyond challenge... Uh, In doing so, they had to make a judgment on the validity of the science. So it seems the case was about climate change after all. And this was why Justice Alito believed the Supreme Court should consider the implications of allowing the case to proceed. Ongoing scientific debate does not belong in the courtroom. Have I got hold of the right end of the dreaded hockey stick? In the meantime, happy Valentine's Day. And as Theo Kojak would have said, who loves you, baby? Answer all your club members for starters. All the best, John Creasy. Um, yeah, well, here's, here's the thing. It's It was, as the judge told the jurors at the beginning of the case, it wasn't a case about climate change. It was about defamation. Um, but in the end, uh, that wanker man introduced no real evidence that we had defamed him. As you know, I stood on the truth. I, st- I always stand on the truth because that's what 
I think that's what you have today. Uh, my only currency is my reputation and my integrity. So if you start saying, oh, well, I didn't really mean to say whatever is, you know, uh, like Fox News's idiot lawyer in whatever case that was with Tucker, who said, oh, well, no one who watches Tucker believes a word of what he says. That Fox News lawyer may have come up with a very lawyerly line that won the case, uh, but he inflicted uh, damn, And that's always quoted now. You always see tweeters doing it whenever Tucker says something. They always quote the Fox News lawyer. Alex Jones, uh, the other guy, on uh, in a custody battle with his ex-wife, uh, his ex-wife saying, you know, he's he's uh, you only have to listen to 20 minutes of his radio show uh, to know that he's nuts and the kids shouldn't be having to be around a guy that nuts. And Alex Jones's lawyer said, oh, well, that Alex Jones is just a character that my client plays on the radio. That's super damaging too. that kind of stuff. And uh, so uh, so. I always stand on the truth. And he and the truth is, I've said what I've said about that hockey stick for a quarter century. So as I said, if I'm an act if I'm simply acting it and I really know that it's not true, I must be the greatest bloody actor since Olivier. Right. I should get a lifetime achievement award uh, from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences if I'm that good an actor. So he failed to prove this defamation case. Nevertheless, the jury basically uh, ignored the judge and decided it was about climate change. So he, he had no damages. So he lost on the damages claim. Uh, he got, uh, they awarded him a dollar in, da in damages, actual damages from Rand Simberg and a dollar in actual damages from me. And then they decided what was important was to send a message, right, that you can't challenge these things. In the land of the so-called free, a craven bunch of jurors decides that, oh, no, no, we have to have an appeal to authority. We need to prostrate ourselves, prostrate or prostrate uh, ourselves before the, I'm thinking of that guy in the park, uh, prostrate ourselves, prostrate ourselves before the almighty science and teach a lesson which they will do very successfully. That really, you just don't want to actually get uh, start questioning authority and official science. So they levied a million dollars. Justice Alito uh, saw clearly where this was going, and it will be, and it has in fact inflicted. It's an act of vandalism on the First Amendment, as it has been understood. Uh, since uh, New York Times and Sullivan in the uh, early 60s. And in consequence, uh, that's why uh, not just uh, Mr. Alito, but some of the other guys will be interested in taking it up. Dan Maguire says, how does the $1,000 Simberg judgment versus the $1 million dollar Stein judgment makes sense. Wasn't Simberg's comment much more damaging and inflammatory? Yeah, he was the one who came up with the uh, Sandusky comparison. But uh, but Rand, uh, you know, I like Rand. He's, uh, he's an agreeable fellow. But as his counsel argued, he's not a big famous person. He doesn't go on television. He doesn't go on radio. 
And the difference between the $1,000 for Rand and a million dollars for me is uh, when uh, John Williams, uh, Michael Mann's counsel, brought up the fact that I guest hosted for Tucker and I guest hosted for Rush and I'd guest hosted other shows on Fox News. In other words, uh, it's a way of teaching what they see as, you know, uh, right wing people that you ain't going to be able to get away with it. You know, there is no free speech on this area of public policy. There's the correct answer to the question. And that's it. Uh, and uh, Ken says, as I recall, it was Simberg who wrote the original comparison between Mann and Sandusky. Mayor Mark Stein just repeated it with the proviso that he would not go so far as Simberg did. And uh, yeah, I said I wouldn't have followed that metaphor. All the By the way, that's the other reason it isn't going to go anywhere. Uh, a metaphor, a literary device, an illusion a simile. These things cannot be defamatory. They're not capable of defamatory meaning. One of the uh, expressions, I think I was acquitted on this one, was uh, I call Michael Mann the very ringmaster of the tree ring circus. There is no such thing as a tree ring circus. It's not a thing that's capable of being proven factually wrong. It's not even like Charlotte Coleman's bum in that sense, which is a real thing. Uh, I've stood next to it on a theatrical first night. <laughs> uh, anyway, what am, I, what am I talking? Charlotte, I got all confused now. Um, yeah, uh, that, that's, that's the point, though, that you can't something, a metaphor is not capable of defamatory meaning. Uh, man merely abused data, not people, and yet the jury gave the lighter sentence to Simberg a mere grand while giving Stein a thousand times that. Why? Perhaps because Stein was more famous and thus needed a heavier punishment. As always, Mark, you are in my prayers. I don't think it's because I'm particularly famous. As I said, everyone's talking about me in the past tense now, which uh, suggests I died a couple of years ago and they just haven't told me. Um, but the point of that, uh, it's, it's more basic than that. It's like the minute they said, oh, we've got the guest host for Tucker and the guest host for Sean Hannity and the guest host for Rush Limbaugh here, then they thought that was base. They thought basically I was a guest plaintiff for Rush, Sean and um, and Tucker and they acted accordingly. And that was uh, entirely predictable, entirely uh, predictable in uh, that in, in that uh, sense. Uh, let's let's pause a moment from the passing Sharivari for a uh, short musical interlude, as you know, because uh, I'm now liberated. For the last month, I was in the diseased and depraved capital city of the United States, and so I thought while I was there that on this show every week I'd play a great song about Washington, D.C. in this spot every week. Because as all of us foreigners know, every great American city is a great American song about it. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. Pardon me, boys, at the Chattanooga Choo Choo. My kind of town Chicago is. I left my heart in San Francisco. On and on. 
And then I discovered that, oddly enough, no one has been minded to write a great song about America's diseased and depraved capital city. So that scuttled that plan. Anyway, the District of Columbia Superior Court sits just across from the intersection of 5th Street and D, which for some reason reminded me of 4th Street and D, and I couldn't figure out what I was thinking of uh, until eventually it came to me. The Simpsons, the TV show, and the episode where the family makes their first trip from Springfield to their state's somewhat generic capital city. And what do you know? That undistinguished burg has a better song than Washington, D.C. Start spreading the news. Tony Bennett. Well, kids, there it is. Capital City. There's a swinging town I know called Capital City People stop and scream hello in Capital City It's the kind of place that makes a bum feel like a king And it makes a king feel like some nutty cuckoo Super King Look, it's Tony Bennett Hey, good to see you It's against the law To frown in Capital City You'll caper like a stupid clown When you chance to see Fourth Street MD, yeah Once you get a whiff of it You'll never want to roam Capital City, my home sweet, yeah Capital City, that happy tall city It's Capital City, my home sweet, swinging home Capital City, yeah! Once you get a whiff of it, you'll never want to roam That's a wonderfully expert parody of all those odes to cities that never sleep, and it treads brilliantly the fine line between buoyant optimism and unbounded insanity. It's the kind of place that makes a bum feel like a king, and it makes a king feel like some nutty cuckoo super king. Tony Bennett on The Simpsons, singing words and music by Jeff Martin. Who's Jeff Martin? Well, he's a writer on The Simpsons. Uh, About 20 years ago, I wrote a paragraph or two, somewhere or other, about how deft I thought that song was, and Mr Martin sent me a lovely note back about it. Mark Stein, live around the planet. It's 22 to 4, Deep State Standard Time. That is 22 to 9, Greenwich Mean Look Time, if you're in aisle 9. A little behind, a lot ahead. According to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth, let's get... uh, Back to your questions. Elise Angel writes, Happy Valentine's Day. You're a poetry aficionado, Mark. What do you think of uh, Columbia uh, University and Brown University students' chant 
of Yemen, Yemen, make us proud, turn another ship around. Well, <laughs> you're, just, you're just trying to get a rise out of me, aren't you, Elisa? Because you know what? I, it doesn't rhyme. Proud does not rhyme with around. At least, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Rhymes. Uh, so when morons are dancing up and down in the streets, uh, a rhyme, if there's two lines and they're supposed to rhyme, you could at least take the trouble, you Ivy League asses, of coming up with a, I can do it in my sleep. Yemen, Yemen, make us proud. Turn another ship around. Why, why are you that lazy? You're supposed to be Ivy League students. Come on, Tehran, make us proud. Let's see one big mushroom cloud. That rhymes. I'm it's the lack of excellence at what are supposed to be institutions of excellence that I can't stand. Norman Fenton. Uh, Professor Norman Fenton, whom you know from the Internet, says, Mark, did you see that Michael Mann and Peter Hotez, the guy who got everything wrong on the COVID, are collaborating on a book about, quote, the anti-science movement? Sounds like it's an autobiographical double act. Yeah. And it's worth, you know, it's worth the, the, the point. The point about free speech um, is free speech isn't a big mass popular thing. It's a thing that that's why the big things about free speech, the lines that everyone quotes are are supposedly from men of words like Voltaire or Salman Rushdie or whoever, because it's not a pop. People think, well, you know, uh, Stein's like uh, uh, bad-mouthing some uh, graph to do with climate science. That's not something I'm ever going to be bothered doing. So why is free speech? You know, the same way we had this thing in Canada uh, 15 years ago is how it started. It went a very different route in the end. But initially, because people think, well, wait a minute. You know, Stein's in trouble because of stuff he's saying about Islam. I, I'm not really the kind of person who wants to start mouthing off about Islam, so it's not a big deal to me. But COVID, I think, has taught us that uh, it, it is about everybody because they did it to everybody. So the lockdowns applied to everybody. The not being able to have granny round for Thanksgiving applied to everybody. Your church being closed applied to everybody. Your hairdressing salon being shut down applied to everybody. They did it to everybody. And yet, if you uh, watched the media, the so-called mainstream media, or read the mainstream media in most parts of the West, Western world, certainly the Anglo world, you weren't allowed to criticise that. Only fringe crazies criticise that. And people always think the free speech law only applies to the fringe crazy. Uh, like they used to say, oh, well, you know, yes, uh, until uh, my particular case came along 15 years ago, uh, when they talked about the Human Rights Commission, uh, shutting down people's free speech. They say, oh, yeah, but these are all very weird, fringy people. They're nutters, uh, you know, uh, issuing, uh, doing fo photocopying in their mum's basement uh, about Nazis and that kind of thing. Uh, so it's just some fringe Nazi out on the edge of the map. Yeah. And it all, and that's, 
by the way, how the wankers of the Yank media, uh, Esquire, I think, called me an internet Yahoo. And I can't remember which writer it is, but I'll bet my career against his because I've uh, had international bestsellers and I've been received in all the chancelleries of power to discuss my books with presidents and princes and kings and queens and prime ministers. I'll bet my career. But I'm just an internet yahoo now. So the opposite happens. When they start targeting mainstream figures, they move you to the fringe. So it's like there's nothing to worry about. Unless you're some fringe yahoo like Stein and Simbug, you don't need to worry about any free speech implications about this thing. And uh, COVID... As Norman put, points out, you know, Michael Mann uh, uh, collaborating with one of the big COVID guys is not a coincidence because these things are real. They say it. They say it out loud, you know. In, in the interests of saving the planet, they want you to live in 15-minute cities. Well, wait a minute. 15, how are they going to keep me in a 15-minute city? Uh, you know, the great American, the whole ethos of America is the cry of the open road. Whether you're talking uh, about Huckleberry Finn or get your motor running, head out on the highway, looking for adventure, and then a see a stop sign approaching sign ahead so I slow down for the stop sign approaching sign and then I get to the stop sign and it tells me to turn around and go back to my 15 minute city uh, and yeah I'll be allowed to take an outing once in a while for the three weeks uh, it takes to juice up the electric car yeah they're, they're, the, the point about this is the point about the judgment against me it's like you want to you wanna disagree with the groupthink on climate, that's a million bucks. And meanwhile, that's not just like any other area of public policy. It's an area of public policy that every day is being used as the pretext to take away core basic human liberties, such as freedom of movement. And they're going to be able to do that. They're going to be able to do that. Uh, unless this, uh, 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 if you can't even talk against it. If you can't even uh, talk uh, against it. Um, uh, let's see what else we got here. Oh, Nick Bradley says, Mark, there was a story in the Washington Post last week written by Dino Grandoni about the trial. Way one-sided, but that's not my issue. Yeah, Mr. Grandoni, he, he turned up in court on the ninth day of the trial. And he wasn't the court reporter. He was the climate reporter. In the comments section, there were lots of comments about how you're part of the Koch brothers cabal or you take money from energy companies. I wanted to respond, but I really didn't know who, if anyone, funds you, even in part. I assume no one. But I didn't want to say something technically wrong. Help me out, please. Yeah, I don't take money from energy companies. I would like to take money from energy companies, <laughs> but Exxon never returned my call. Uh, the Koch brothers never returned my calls. 
I've had no money from them at all. And it's quite the opposite. I mean, this is the bollocks of America. As I said rather intemperately a few days ago, well, I didn't say it intemperately. I said it rather sadly, actually. I would never read an American newspaper again. By the way, these were this awful, crappy, lousy, third-rate grub sheet uh, was really... I mean, I didn't really care. They'd, they had some photograph there saying, oh, a photographer there saying, I'm from the Washington Post, can I take a picture of you? I said, no, I don't want my picture in the Washington Post. I wrote for the Washington Post, actually, some decades back. They actually offered me a job at the time of my Atlantic Monthly column as their obituarists, because their obituarists are crap and can't write. Um, anyway, so uh, so I said, no, I don't want to appear in the Washington Post. It's true, I never want to appear in an American newspaper again. Ask Ellen Como, I only want to appear in uh, Francophone newspapers. So anyway, I said no, and so then the guy starts randomly shooting, and I'm wheeled to the car... And there's like, uh, they can get my wheelchair up to the edge of the car, but I have to hoist myself, or on bad days, be hoisted in to the seat. And this guy, this little grubby, uh, nothing twerp of a photographer starts snapping all these pictures of me as I'm sort of uh, gone limp and I'm being lifted into the car and all this, I'm just, you know, and uh, he's coming up close and, and so I just turned around and said, remind me when you're a paraplegic to come and take some pictures of you uh, when you get hideously injured in some motor vehicle accident, I'll come and take some photographs of you. Um uh, so Dino Grandoni, he's not the minute they said he was the climate scientist and uh, a climate uh, reporter, not the he gave me his card, if I recall correctly, uh, and not a court reporter, because it's a court reporter. You're supposed to be weighing the legal issues. If you're just doing, oh, because uh, I know how this works. You give them, you talk to them for 20 minutes. They find one line that they can take out of context. And then all the rest of the piece is all about how climate scientists are being attacked. No, no. That's not the story of our times. People who dissent from the narrative are being attacked. And that's true in the United States. That's true with the Canadian truckers in Canada. That's true with vaccine victims in England. That is true with uh, anti-immigration uh, crowds in Ireland. Uh, that is true across the map. Uh, but people are very deferential to authority now. I think I might modify. You know, when, when people talk about the monarchy, for example, and people who are anti-monarchy, I had this discussion with Tucker. I think it was at the time the Duke of Edinburgh died, and he's not a big monarchist. And I, and I said, well, don't forget, if you do, don't have a king, there's a void. There's a void uh, where the natural deference of a huge chunk of the 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 citizenry uh, is. And so if you don't have a king, it has to go to something else. And the constitutional fetishists, don't wave that constitution at me, because that verdict last Thursday was totally unconstitutional. So we'll get to see what happens, thanks to your constitution now. Boy, 12 years. 
12 years. I love that First Amendment. Uh, anyway, what was I talking about? Got a little excited there. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, what happened? Um, uh, I've completely lost my train of thought now. What, what the hell was I t- talking about? Yeah, the void, the void. If you don't have a king, there's a void. And so the uh, natural deference of a huge chunk of society. Now, you might say, I'm a freeborn citizen. I shouldn't have to be deferential. Unfortunately, that's not how most people are, as I learned to my cost. Uh, and so, so they say, well, we don't have a king, so hopefully uh, people's deference will go to the Constitution and they'll revere this great founding document the way in other countries they revere the crown. And as we now know, that's bollocks, unfortunately. You might wish it were not bollocks, but it is, because instead a kind of faux authority attaches even to Joe Biden. I mean, we live in amazing times. People have do not know who is running the executive branch of the United States. But it is self-evidently not the chief executive who is pictured at random events, sitting amongst people uh, he's supposed to be honouring in some way and for some photo op. He has no idea where he is, why he's there, who these people are, and he's just sitting there slack-jawed with his tongue hanging out and drooling. And when he stops drooling and his jaw starts moving reasonably normally, he recalls that he spoke to Francois Mitterrand uh, uh, just last week. And Francois Mitterrand uh, died only in 1996, so that's actually a good sign for dementia patients, because normally recent decades are the first to fall away. It's actually kind of impressive that Biden can remember someone from the 1990s, because other times he appears to be approaching the stage where he can't, you know, the last 75 years is a big mystery to him. But self-evidently, the chief executive of the United States is not running the executive branch of the United States. And nobody knows who is. And you're, this is what you call the beacon of liberty to the world, right? Right? And yet, your country is being run by person or persons unknown. Weird, weird, weird. And... Um, uh, and so that that's uh, that seems to me not an irrelevant point. Man's whole case was an appeal to authority. Uh, he had a PhD and I don't. And uh, the <laughs> I mocked the uh, I mocked uh, John Williams for saying that I'd uh, I was a high school dropout who'd left school at nine. I said I think that. That's what less litigious societies would call a joke. But have you noticed that uh, you're not permitted jokes on certain subjects anymore? You can't joke. And this is one of the bad things about You can't joke about things like net zero. Uh, they're going to do it again. To them, lockdown worked and they're going to do it again. On a uh, kind of related theme... 
David Smale says, Mark, all the best in your continuing battle with man and the U.S. justice system. Looking ahead to the battle with Ofcom on June the 11th. Yeah, enough of that case. On to the next case. That body has recently cleared Neil Oliver over COVID vaccine-related comments, saying, in line with freedom of expression, our rules allow broadcasters to cover controversial themes and topics. Oh, my, that's awfully big of them. Awfully generous of Dame Melanie and Lord grade. Uh, David says, do you think they are running scared? Uh, uh, Johnny Woodrow adds, hi Mark, might the shift limited hangout in GB News's coverage of vaccine injury and death positively affect your Ofcom case? Uh, Alison Castellina, Nigel Farage belatedly has come out all guns blazing on GB News about vaccines. Do you think Ofcom is about to pounce on him or is he the thousand dollar guy while you are still the one million dollar guy? Look, um, uh, my friend Leilani Dowding, who is going to be with us on uh, the Mark Stein Cruise, and whom I've missed so much by being walled up in crazy town for the last month. I can't wait to see Leilani again. Leilani tweeted today, it's two years. Everyone's excited about Nigel Farage, you know, coming out against the vaccines. It's two years since I did uh, the first one and last one-hour vaccine victim special on a terrestrial broadcasting channel. And as I said uh, to Leilani when she pointed this out, I said, uh, there is no greater sin in media than being right too soon. And Nigel is a very cunning, clever fellow, and he never wants to be the guy who is right too soon. So it may be that he's turning now because he thinks the narrative is crumbling, or it may be that it's just because it's totally unimportant. Uh, and and as is clear from the UK COVID inquiry, they're just going to double down on all uh, on all the rubbish. Um, Toby Pilling says, any thoughts on your old rival from happier times, Piers Morgan, quitting his TV show? Not enough viewers for Ofcom to censor. I, don't, I did enjoy, you know... Um, uh, Piers Morgan Uncensored. Piers did this fantastic deal. He went to Rupert Murdoch's Oxfordshire home. Uh, Rupert, until the COVID, used to spend his whole life flying around. So, like, whenever he called, he was calling from some plane. So, Earth was just somewhere he flew over. And then the COVID hit. And you couldn't really fly around in people's airspace anymore. So he spent all this time in his garden at Oxfordshire. And one day, Piers Morgan shows up. And he and Piers do this insane deal for Piers to do this nightly show uh, on Talk TV in the UK, on Fox Nation in the US, and on Sky News in Australia. And it was a huge flop uh, in all three territories, which is really quite an accomplishment. But I was up against him directly on uh, um, uh, on uh, GB News. And the first night he had Trump on. And, and he lied about the upcoming contents of the Trump interview. He edited it to make Trump look bad and then put out a clip. So he had like millions and millions and millions and millions of people watching on that first show. 
And I would never launch a show. Well, I do, I, as you've seen. I never launch a show like that because, you know, whatever numbers you get are not because of Piers Morgan. They're because of Donald Trump. And you want people to watch. You're not going to be able to get Donald Trump every night. And you're not going to be able to get a guest of that stature every night. So on the first show, you really should uh, establish yourself with uh, what the show is going to be, what the format is going to be. And Piers didn't do that, but he had great audience numbers, and then they just sank like a stone. Now, Rupert was very generous, having invested so much, and this was at the time, you know, that eventually led uh, to his divorce, because, uh, you know, even when you're as wealthy as Rupert, you can't afford two trophy wives. Um, but he, he bought Piers every bus side in London, every railway compartment up and down the UK, and still nobody watched his show. So by the time I started beating him, beating him every night, you know, for a, I tell you, for a lot less money than uh, he was getting from Rupert. You know, I, so he's quitting. He's not actually quitting his show now. He says he's just taking it to YouTube only because he feels being on talk TV and being on Fox Nation and being on Sky News. Sky News eventually it was supposed to be uh, the deal was he was supposed to be on 8 p.m. every night wherever he was. And Sky News eventually pushed him back to 11 o'clock because. Uh, you know, they could they could get uh, a bigger audience in Australia screening a dead koala lying on the desk for an hour. Um, so he's taking it and he's just sort of flounced off uh, to uh, to YouTube on on uh, on that. Um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that question. Um, and uh, uh, Amy Boney Carrot. Possibly not her real name, says Amy Boney Carrot says, is that a dirty joke? I don't know. I fear the Republicans contain too many rhinos. Further, too much idolatry is being conferred on former President Trump with little attention of how he is ensuring voting irregularities are not going to give him the shaft again. This time, not only will the Dems be working hard to screw him over, but now the deep state swamp will also be participating. Well, uh, that's not new. The deep state swamp participated heavily in 2020. Do you remember those Heinz 57 heads of intelligence agencies who all uh, wrote that round robin saying that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation? Hunter Biden then sued <laughs> on the grounds that uh, his privacy was being violated by everyone looking at pictures of him naked with a crack pipe and a hooker. So he didn't seem to get the message that the Heinz 57 heads of intelligence agencies had all concluded the laptop was Russian disinformation. And if you go back to 2016, or, or, obviously off, uh, Operation Crossfire Hurricane, uh, in which the FBI enlisted the Five Eyes security partners of the United States, uh, the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, to take out Trump. Uh, and mysteriously, the Australian High Commissioner in London, who has very good connections with the deep state, then uh, takes uh, uh, some young... Uh, Trump campaign supporter who 
is would otherwise never be of any interest uh, to one of Her Majesty's uh, high commissioners is uh, is suddenly uh, that's all. So they've been they interfered in 2016. They interfered in 2020. In 2016, they didn't interfere quite enough, so the wrong person won the election. Uh, in 2020. They did things rather more efficiently. The question is now, are the Democrats prepared to lose? And in particular, are they prepared to lose to Trump? And I would say the answer to that is no. So the question is, right now, the only interest, because there's no Republican. Normally, when you've got an incumbent versus the other party, it's the other party's politics that are interesting because they've got a very competitive primary. And, oh, so-and-so won Iowa. Candidate A won Iowa, but candidate B won New Hampshire. Now what's going to happen in South Carolina? There's none of that on the other party side, on the opposition side. All the interests are, are this strange thing. Why would the special counsel announce that he he can't, uh, he's not going to prosecute Biden because Biden's too old and demented? I mean, that doesn't... Nobody else gets a break on age grounds, you know. Um, it was just, I think it was at the end of last year they found some old Nazi and, uh, you know, some uh, camp guard or whatever and dragged him. Nobody says, oh, oh, the poor old Nazi's 103 now, so no jury would convict him um, because he's old and he can't remember all the details. No, they, they drag him into court. Uh, so it's very... Uh, it's, it's, uh, so, so this thing, on the one hand, they're announcing that, uh, that Biden is too mentally enfeebled to be put in the witness box and get a fair trial. And, uh, but on the other, <laughs> that's no obstacle to running for a second term. So the question is, I think, I think what's going on here is they've decided they are going to win in November. The only thing they haven't decided is how they're going to win. I don't think it's going to be Michelle Obama, and I don't think it's uh, going to be uh, Kamala Harris. You know, I. It depends how they. The the worse it gets, the more brazen they have to be, and I wouldn't. Uh, you know, I wouldn't entirely rule out them uh, moving, waiting till the last minute to uh, axe Biden if they need to. I'm, as I've said before, I think they'd be quite happy running a candidate who is clinically dead because that's the best kind of candidate. Then it's just like it would be like the first term, only more so. You, you know, all these people, well, we're not a democracy, we're a constitutional republic. Well, you're not anything at the moment because you don't know who's running your country. So stop bleating with the stupid nursery school slogans and get real. You've lost your country. You have no idea who's running it. All you know is that of the 350 million people, the one guy we can definitely say isn't running the country is Joe Biden. Joe Biden. OK, sorry to get excited about that. <laughs> the thing about it is, look... <laughs> Look, as I've learned to my cost, almost every American institution is evil. Uh, there is no equality before the law in America. So U.S. justice is evil. 
the US military is an evil institution. It's basically become a racket uh, for third-rate generals who can't win anything to nevertheless serve just enough time to make a cozy living as lobbyists. Uh, and in that scenario, all you want is a war that goes on for years. doesn't matter whether you, as, as Julian Assange says, the point isn't to win it. It's, it's uh, what was his line? Um, uh, it, it, it's oh, I can't remember what it is now. But anyways, the thing is, is the point isn't to win it or to lose it. The point is just to keep it going forever so you can make a load of money. That's evil. To do that at the cost of the uh, poor, bloody American soldiery getting their limbs blown off for a war uh, the generals are not serious about winning is evil. Um, American education is evil because they're slicing the breasts of little schoolgirls. They're sowing confusion in people. You know, I love the rights victories. We're supposed to be all excited because in San Francisco a couple of days ago, uh, the uh, school board decided that the experiment in woke kindergarten hadn't worked. So the woke kindergarten telling uh, whatever age they are, five-year-olds, the white people are evil, and you, you, you may think you're a girl, but in fact you're a boy. And all that. It wasn't working. It had just driven. They, they were like almost all uh, American kindergartens. They're just, they were just generally crap at everything, at teaching kids. Uh, but amazingly, just as you thought they'd absolutely hit rock bottom... Uh, converting themselves to woke kindergarten had apparently made the things worse. And we're all supposed to be cheering this great victory in San Francisco. In fact, the generality of American education, as we've seen with this trans thing, as Vladimir Putin likes to go on about, has made things worse. And, and at a certain point, when all the institutions are evil... The things that form and shape a society are evil. Uh, you have to actually ask yourself uh, whether it's possible for the society as a whole not to eventually become evil. Uh, I can't leave you with that thought. Rebecca Namai, I uh, hope I pronounced that right, Rebecca, says, Mark, have you considered asking Elon Musk if he would help you in your case with Michael Mann, the hockey stick man, as he is bad-mouthing you on Twitter, as Elon has done with Gina Carano. Don't let them get you down, Mark. We all support you and will pray for you. Well, Rebecca, very interesting, because uh, actually my lawyer uh, in D.C. is also uh, representing uh, Gina Carano in her suit against Disney. Uh, that's the one that Elon is paying for, because Elon has said if you lose your job because of your tweets, he'll pay your bills. Uh, my slight problem with that is that I never tweet. And in any case, uh, uh, my chum Ava Velardingerbrook is great pals with Elon Musk. <laughs> Elon Musk is, well, uh, that's not strictly true. Elon Musk is a fan of Ava's. Whereas, whereas Elon Musk's dad <laughs> is a fan of mine. And I'm not sure that works out quite so well because Elon and his dad are apparently estranged. Anyway, uh, that's, that's the way that looks. I've gone on a bit. 
Uh, as uh, I'd, uh, I'd, I've uh, gone on a bit uh, too long on all that, uh, and um, uh, I'm, it's good to be back. Sorry I'm a bit wiped out. Um, I regret to say that because I am wiped out, I've either had nights where I don't sleep or nights where I sleep for 14 hours since, so it, I guess it evens out. But I regret to say that in the confusion, I missed the centenary on Monday of one of the great American musical works, from a time when, unlike today, our popular culture was full of innovation and energy. One day, early in the new year, 1924, January 3rd, in fact, this was the way I heard it from George Gershwin's girlfriend, Kay Swift, sitting in her flat near the 59th Street Bridge. Uh, late one night on January 3rd, 1924, George Gershwin and his lyricist Buddy De Silva decided to take a break from working on their new musical comedy, Sweet Little Devil. And so they swung by the Ambassador Billiard Parlour at Broadway and 52nd Street. Uh, while composer and lyricist played pool, George's brother Ira sat off to one side, browsing the first edition of the next day's New York Tribune, when his eye fell on a short piece called What is American Music? So having an interest in the subject, he started reading and discovered that it was about a concert that Paul Whiteman, America's most popular band leader, the so-called King of Jazz, that... Uh, Paul Whiteman was planning to give at Aeolian Hall to mark Lincoln's birthday, February 12th. And the concert was to be a, quote, experiment in modern music that would attempt to synthesise jazz and classical music. Oh, thought Ira, that sounds awfully interesting. And then he read the next sentence, quote, George Gershwin is at work on a jazz concerto. Uh which was news to George. He wasn't at work on a jazz concerto. He, he was at work on a new musical comedy due to open at the Astor Theatre in just over two weeks' time. So he called Paul Whiteman, and having pre-announced it in the press, Whiteman told George how bad it would look if the composer failed to deliver. So a couple of days later, on the train to Boston for the pre-Broadway tryout of Sweet Little Devil, he started sketching out his jazz concerto, in a two-piano score, having secured an undertaking from Paul Whiteman that the band's peerless arranger, Ferdy Grofe, would be around to orchestrate it. When he'd finished the piece, he called it American Rhapsody. But his brother Ira had been to see an exhibition of paintings by Whistler, who liked to give his pictures pseudo-musical titles. The most obvious example is what he called Arrangement in Grey and Black, number one, which everyone else knows as the portrait of Whistler's mother. But there's also variations in pink and grey and harmony in blue and gold. And on this particular visit, <clears throat> Ira was struck by a painting of the Thames at Chelsea, that Whistler had called Nocturne in Blue and Green. So he went back to George and said, not American Rhapsody, but Rhapsody in Blue.
Well, if you couldn't be at the Aeolian Hall on West 42nd Street in New York City, just north of Bryant Park, uh, the building's still there, but it is now without music. Uh, if you couldn't be there on February 12th, 1924, for an experiment in modern music, that's as close as you're going to get. The same orchestra, Paul Whiteman and his band, the same pianist, George Gershwin, the same clarinetist, Ross Gordon, with the same opening glissando, the same orchestrator, Ferdy Grofe, with the same orchestration, as recorded in the studio just a few months later. Rhapsody in Blue. 100 years old this week. That'll do it for our show. Stick with Stein Online for our regular Thursday date with Laura's links. Laura Rosen-Cohen will round up the internet as only she can. Our official Stein versus the Stick trial merchandise is still available. Only now it's the official merchandise for the appellate hearing. Plus à change. Plus case. We ordered it in the early years of this lawsuit, so we even have Stein versus the Stick mouse pads. Mouse pads. If you remember those, we probably have a Stein versus the Stick hula hoop or a Stein versus the Stick buggy whip lying around somewhere. If you don't fancy those, there is always a Stein Online gift certificate or a Mark Stein Club gift membership for the deserving member of your family. If you're all set for Valentine's Day, a romantic candlelit supper with the hi-fi high and the lights down low, and the only thing you can't quite figure is what music to play, well, check out last Sunday's audio edition of our Song of the Week and the story of the great Valentine love song. Happy Valentine's Day. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Rights reserved.